I remember reading a story about a tragedy that occurred in Dallas, Texas many, many years ago. And according to the story, a preacher received a phone call that led him to a tiny and dirty garage apartment. A man holding a 12-gauge shotgun met him at the door. And the man invited the preacher in, and the two of them sat for over an hour at a small kitchen table with a naked light bulb dangling above it, just talking. The man poured out a heartbreaking story. He had just been released from the hospital, recovering from back surgery. He could hardly move, was in constant pain. He had lost all contact with his wife and their only son many years earlier when their marriage had failed. He was all alone, totally despondent, totally desperate. And as the two talked of the man's intense struggles, the preacher began to, to look around as his eyes wandered at this dingy apartment. And he noticed that the walls were covered with photographs. All of them pictures of the man's sons at various stages of life. There were photos taken when the, the boy was still in diapers, others showed the boy graduating from kindergarten, still others showed the little boy in a little league baseball uniform with a bat over his shoulder, on and on, right up through high school. And it occurred to the pastor that this man's entire focus centered on a marriage that had failed and a son whom he was no longer able to enjoy. And as the article put it, those nostalgic, quote, misty, watercolored memories of the way we were, end quote, held this man captive in a prison house of despondency. Well, unfortunately, the, the preacher's efforts to help this man see beyond the walls of his anguish proved futile. Less than a week after the preacher's visit, the man drove his car deep into the woods in East Texas and shot himself to death. To him, life was no longer worth the fight. What would bring a person to take his own life? Why would someone commit suicide? Whatever the reason, it's clear that people who commit suicide feel they're in a desperate situation and that no other solution is in sight. Now, they're wrong. But that's the way they feel. Have you ever been in a desperate situation? Have you ever been so depressed or despondent that you contemplated taking your own life? You know, depression obviously is the leading cause of suicide, and suicide has become the real epidemic over the past 18 months. The National Alliance on Mental Illness Helpline, which is a leading suicide hotline, reports a 65% increase in calls and emails from people reaching out for help since the pandemic started. 65%. In November of 2020, at the height of the pandemic, uh, Crisis Text Line, another suicide hotline, received 180,000 calls, its highest single month volume ever. It was an increase of 30,000 over the previous month. These suicide prevention organizations say that 
90% of those who call or reach out are under 35 years of age. Now, suicide is never the answer. It's often been pointed out that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But what do you do when you find yourself wrestling with your thoughts and the answers don't seem to come? Do you ever talk to yourself? you ever find yourself having deep, philosophical, all the wives are looking at their husbands. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. you ever find yourself having deep, philosophical conversations with yourself? Someone told me uh, talking to yourself is a sign of higher intelligence, brilliance even. <laughs> In fact... In fact, uh, someone told me studies show that those who talk to themselves tend to achieve more in life. I'm not sure who told me that. I think it was myself. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> like most of my jokes, it really it takes, you really have to pay attention to, to recognize that's what was happening. Yeah, oh yeah, that's <laughs> a cayenne pepper. It takes a while to take hold. Yeah, it's a slow burn. Wow, you really are just, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, in my devotional uh, a week or so ago, you know, I do a devotional every week. I hope you're getting those. They come out every Thursday. Uh, if you're not, you need to sign up for our email newsletter. Um, but we also print some copies at the back. Um, but it was called a couple weeks ago, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. And I discussed how to hear the voice of God. I used the experience of Elijah and his battle with the prophets of Baal and with you know, his conflict with Ahab and Queen Jezebel as the backdrop uh, for that devotional. And it was really a, that story is a really good reminder that sometimes God speaks to us in a still, small voice. Well, this morning I'd like to take a look at how to deal with another voice, that voice in our heads. Do you ever have those moments when you find yourself wrestling with silent fears or doubts, questions, confusion, anger, the things that can really consume us and make us obsessed? I know you do because we all do. Sometimes, many times a day, we might retreat into the recesses of our own minds and have a conversation. It doesn't make us crazy to talk to ourselves. I mean, maybe it could make you crazy. It depends on what you're talking to yourself about and what yourself says. But in general, it doesn't make you crazy. But what are we to make of those times when the circumstances of life cause us to question everything we thought we knew about God? Have you been there? as a believer? How do we process those thoughts of fear and doubt and anger? What are those private moments of wrestling with our thoughts that sometimes become all-consuming, even crippling? Where do they fit into the overall paradigm of God's Word? <clears throat> well, fortunately, and as with all things in life, the Bible addresses this very issue. In Psalm 13, uh, we get a glimpse at, once again, King David as he's really, really struggling uh, to get his hands around whatever he was facing at that, at that moment. Let me give you some background before we 
take a look at this short psalm. Obviously, it was written by King David, so we're talking circa 1000 B.C., 1,000 years before Christ. And as we've seen before in this journey through selected psalms, David was no stranger to battles. You know, as a youngster, he had battled wolves and robbers and other predators while tending his sheep in the fields. And as a warrior, a king, he battled hostile nations that were seeking to attack his kingdom. But in Psalm 13, we find David engaged in a different battle. He's wrestling with his thoughts. And I want you to just kind of picture, we don't know, like so many of David's psalms and other psalms, David wrote half of the psalms in our Bible, as you know, but we don't know exactly where he was, but maybe he was outside, sitting under a tree in a garden as he wrestled with these thoughts. Or maybe he was on his throne, and he was just overwhelmed by whatever he was facing, and maybe he, he demanded that everyone leave the room so he could just think in private, you know, like a CEO or somebody walking, I need the room, right? Or maybe he's lying in bed tossing and turning, restless as he wrestles with his own thoughts. Whatever the case, there was a battle brewing in his mind. And there were many things that could have been tormenting him from the historical record that we have in Scripture. We know, for example, that he was a liar. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. I can only imagine what, when his thoughts turned to those past experiences, how that might have tormented him. But, you know, the Bible also tells us he was a man after God's own heart. He loved and knew the Lord intimately and deeply and had an incredible dependence on Yahweh, his creator, as we've seen in other psalms that we've looked at in this series. You know, the enemy in Psalm 13 here is unspecified, and I'm kind of glad because it allows us to insert whatever enemy we are facing right now. Whatever it is that's captivating our thoughts. But whoever or whatever his enemy was, it resulted in him wrestling with his thoughts. And this short psalm has three short stanzas. Remember we talked about when we introduced this series on Psalms several weeks ago how the Psalms, of course, didn't have verse and chapter numbers like we have now. That came along many centuries after, uh, after even in the first century, um, hundreds of years after Christ. Uh, but they were written in poetic form. They were songs intended to be sung, and they were organized into stanzas, not unlike our traditional hymn books that might have, you know, Verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and so forth. Um, but each of these stanzas in Psalm 13, and there are three of them, is broken up into two verses in our modern English translations. So there are six verses in Psalm 13. Verses 1 and 2 are the first stanza. Verses 3 and 4 are the second stanza. Verses 5 and 6 are the third stanza. And each stanza gives us a glimpse into David's mind as he wrestles with his thoughts. We see a progression in David's thoughts as he works through his fears and his doubts. And for each of these three stanzas, I'm going to give us two words, just two words, that, that summarize the thoughts that were pummeling David's mind. So let's start with the first stanza. We'll read it first, verses 1 and 2. 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? And so at first, it's as if David is so despondent, so terrified that he's, he's flat on his face and he's crying out in anguish, truly wrestling with his thoughts, like he can't even look up is the, is the idea. Have you ever been there? You're so weighted down by the pressures of life and the torments of your soul that you cannot even get up. Four different times in this stanza, these first two verses in our English Bibles, he says, how long, how long, how long, how long? There seems to be no end to his anguish. And when you see no end to your anguish, then your mind naturally turns to how long? How long am I going to have to endure this? How long am I going to be in this valley? And then as we wait, the questions start to come like a flood. And the two words I think that best summarize this first stanza are what if. What if. These questions that were plaguing him were a series of, of what-ifs, really, and life is full of them. For example, what if God is silent? You know? You ever felt like that? What if God is absent? You can't seem to find God in the midst of whatever you're facing. Or what about this one? What if I can't fix this? Circumstances beyond our control that just plague us. What if there are no answers? You know, life is filled with inequities and inconsistencies. And when we can't figure it out, it really is troubling. Uh, what if my enemy wins? What's your enemy? You know, what subject or topic comes up again and again in those private conversations that you have with yourself? What if I'm not good enough? You ever feel that way? What if I fail? What if I lose my job? What if I can't pay the bills? What if my son or daughter never speaks to me again? What if my husband leaves me? What if I end up alone? What if I get cancer? What if someone finds out what I've done? What if I let my children down? What if I can't get past these torturous feelings in my soul. That's where David was. That's where David was. Flat on his face. What if? What if? What if? How long? Are you going to forget me forever? Are you there? How long do I have to have this conversation deep in my own soul? 
having this sorrow in my heart daily. You can tell this was a prolonged season in David's life. But then we see in the second stanza a shift. As if with nowhere else to turn, David slowly lifts up his head and looks heavenward. Perhaps he sits up on his knees, hopefully, just thinking, I've got to do something. Maybe slowly he begins to regain his composure from being flat on his face to up on his knees, and he talks to God. Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. In other words, I'm, I'm dying here, God. Lest my enemy says, I have prevailed against him. And lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. I think the two words that best summarize the second stanza are the words, if only. If only. He's up on his knees. And he's, he's just crying out for solutions. Anything that would help move him beyond this valley. If only you'll hear me. If only you'll open my eyes and help me understand your perspective is uh, the idea here. If only you'll take away the pain and the hurt and the anguish. See, when you're in one of those depressed states, when you feel like the whole world has turned dark, first of all, you cry out for God. He doesn't seem to be there. But then you begin to check off all the things that if only this would happen, my problems would go away. I would feel better if only this. If only you'll prove my enemies wrong and show yourself strong, O Lord. If only you'll fix this. That's really what we're asking, isn't it? If only you'll make this go away. You know, please, God, answer my prayers. If you'll only answer my prayers. If I could only see things the way you see them, maybe then I would understand. If only you were here right now to hold my hand and see me through. If only. If only. So the what-ifs begin to shift into the if-only. In another psalm, Psalm 30, David said these famous words, For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. There were many times when David called on the Lord for help throughout his life. And like this psalm, he's acknowledging God's faithfulness to help. Psalm 30 goes on to say, Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. Lord, be my helper. Now, I don't know which psalm he wrote first, Psalm 13 or Psalm 30, but perhaps as he's writing in anguish with these torturous thoughts in his mind, wrestling with his thoughts, he thought of Psalm 30 and what he had said previously. 
Or in another psalm of David, Psalm 54, he cries out, Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. And remember we said Selah is just a musical notation. We're not exactly sure what it indicated, but it was just something for the singers. But have, have you been in this type of circumstance before? If only. You know, God, I need a miracle. If only you would do this thing. We've been there. And I know you have too. We recently finished a, a lengthy series on Sunday mornings through the book of Hebrews. And it's interesting in Hebrews chapter 13, the writer in the context, he says we should be content with whatever with whatever was going on in our life because he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Quoting Joshua there when Joshua uh, and the children of Israel on the banks of the Jordan and God through Joshua gave them this great uh, pep talk and encouraged them. Uh, and then he goes on to say, so we may boldly say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Quoting from David in Psalm 27 and also from Psalm 118, an anonymous messianic psalm. And then we see in the third stanza another progression. So David has gone from being flat on his face. What if? All these series of what ifs just rapidly flooding his mind in panic almost to then slowly getting up on his knees and you can just almost see the struggle there in, his, in, the, in the tone and saying, if only God. But then, as he's communicating with God and the Spirit of God begins to work on him, we see one more shift in the third stanza. We see a picture of David on his feet, triumphant, confident, determined to trust God. There's a strong contrastive word there in Hebrew that begins this final stanza, the third stanza, but it's a contrastive word in our English language as well. And he says, even with all the what ifs and if onlys, I have trusted in your mercy. I have trusted in your mercy. That word mercy there is the word chesed. We've talked a lot about that. It's God's loyal love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. He's not talking there about eternal salvation. You know, we, in our English Bibles, we tend to, every time we see the word salvation, we think of it in terms of heaven and hell. But as I've pointed out many times, uh, most commonly in both the Old and New Testaments, the word salvation just means physical deliverance, rescue. 58% of the times in the New Testament, the verb saved has nothing to do with eternal life. It just means being rescued. And David says, I have trusted in your mercy, your loyalty, your loyal love, and my heart will rejoice in your deliverance. It's a declarative statement. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And I think the two words that characterize and sum up this last stanza are even if. Even if. 
David, very in this very short psalm, just giving us a glimpse of what we know from his own language, seems to have been a period of days at least, goes from what if to if only to even if in a strong statement of trust. He says, even if I don't understand, even if it hurts, even if my enemy is winning, I will trust you. My faith is in you. Even if people hate me. You ever been hated? Truly hated? I've been there. I can, I can think of many flashbacks in my mind now. I remember being confronted once in my office by a guy who, had he not been restrained, would have punched me. He hated me so much. Even if I can't solve the problem, I will still trust you, Lord. Even if it doesn't go away. It's a hard place to get to, but David gets there. Even if people don't understand me, I'll trust God. Even if people mischaracterize me or stereotype me or judge me or shun me or hurt me, I'm going to trust Him. In fact, even if all else fails, yet will I trust Him. And I think what we need to notice and what's so encouraging to me about this psalm, and I've come back to it many, many times through the years. Uh, I can remember a crisis I went through in college where I wrote out, it was a prolonged crisis, and I wrote out verses on little index cards. This was before computers were really in, in, in common use anyway. And... Uh, punched a hole in the corner and, and tied them together with a piece of red yarn and I would keep them with me and I'd flip through them and Psalm 13 was on one of them and it just kept reminding me of of really two things which is what I want us to, to take away this morning and that is number one it's okay to have these conversations with God but you don't want to camp out there forever you don't want to wallow around in these questions without eventually turning your heart back to God and trusting Him. One of the things we appreciate about David in the Psalms is his transparency. Because, man, we can relate. We can relate to the what-ifs of life. And we can relate to crying out, if only, God, here, God, let me tell you how to handle this one. <laughs> here, God, grab some paper and pen and let me... You know, take a memo, God. Here's what I need you to do. If only you'll do this. If only you'll do this. If only you'll do this. Everything will be fine. That's not the way God works. God is sovereign. God is in full control. We live in a fallen, messed up world under the curse of sin that's full of inequities and unfairness. And, you know, we made it that way, by the way. This isn't the world God created. So as we shake our fist toward heaven, questioning God with all the what-ifs, we need to be reminded that it's only because of God, our Deliverer, that we're even able to navigate these horrific experiences of life successfully. He's the hope, not the cause. He's the solution, not the problem. And that's where David gets. And so as we... As we have these transparent moments and they're going to come 
And I believe they're going to come more and more as life gets harder and harder. It's okay to have these conversations with God. We see that. And this is a great example of it in a nice, short, succinct three stanza hymn. <laughs> what if and if only. But we've got to, uh, in, in our spirit and in, through the strength of the Holy Spirit, we've got to get up off of our face, onto our knees, and ultimately onto our feet and declare, even if. Even if. And, you know, Job is the classic example of this. We've looked at this often as we've talked about trusting God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I mentioned in our 9 o'clock Bible study hour this morning the experience of the three Hebrew children who were standing firm for their faith, encouraging one another, praying together. And when they were commanded to bow down and worship a false idol, uh, or be put into a furnace and burned to death, they boldly told the king, we will not wor worship the image that you've set up. And we believe that our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But notice this. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we don't serve your gods and we still won't worship the gold image which you've set up. In other words, we believe God is fully capable of delivering us from this crisis. But even if he doesn't, we will still trust him. One of the passages that was very meaningful to my mother-in-law in her final days was from Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And you see this theme again and again in Paul's writings because, you know, Paul, there are a lot of parallels between Paul and David. I mean, Paul, like David, was in a position of authority when he was Saul. He was a leader. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee. David, of course, was a leader in Israel, too, in his day, the king, the top dog. And yet they both did terrible things that plagued their conscience. Even before Paul was a believer, we know that uh, according to Romans chapter 2, that our conscience bears witness even in the lives of unbelievers. So no doubt he knew what he had done was wrong. But then he met the Lord, and, and he faced all kinds of suffering and all kinds of uh, uh, persecution. He was left for dead. He was thrown in jail. He was beaten, flogged, um, turned, you know, turned against by some of his own fellow believers. <laughs> And I wonder what some of the conversations that Paul must have had with himself would have sounded like, right? You know, I wonder if he might have thought, you know, Lord, look at what all I've done for you and how I'm sharing the gospel and, and seeing people come to, to know you, but then just as quickly his mind bounced to, oh, but boy, look at what all I've done. And so maybe I'm just getting what I deserved. And how could I possibly feel, you know, you know, expect God to deliver me from these persecutions? Because after all, look what I did. And so he's just having these kinds of thoughts that, that who, there's no end to where they can be. And yet, again and again in his writings, we see Paul come back to keep it all in perspective. Set your mind on things above, remember? Or in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, We do not lose heart. As though our outward man is perishing, we know our inward man is being renewed. 
So he kept that spiritual uh, perspective. Where are you in your thought process this morning? Are you on your knees? Or maybe you're still on your face. Just can't even get the strength to look up at God. Or maybe you're on your feet trusting God, but your knees are a little wobbly and you need some encouragement. Are you, are you being paralyzed by all the what-ifs of life? Or maybe you're angry at God right now for something and you're crying out, if only, if only, if only God. So my encouragement would be to keep on wrestling. Stay in the Word. Read passages like this one from Psalm 13. Keep talking. Even if it is to yourself. Because <laughs> God's listening. And, and eventually you'll talk yourself into turning your attention to God. And eventually with God's help and grace you'll arrive safely at that place of confident faith where you say, even if. Even if. And I think this psalm is so relevant to every walk of life in all generations. But I especially feel like the Lord put it on my heart because we are headed into some dark days, I, I believe, unless the Lord intervenes, which he may, may very well, and we pray that he does. But we're going to have to probably face some experiences that as uh, believers in Christ, we've not had to face before in this country. And many already are. And I think we need to remember again the two things. It's okay to wrestle with your thoughts. But don't camp out in that place of bitterness. Don't camp out with your back turned to God flat on your face. Let the Word of God, which you know and you've studied and you're part of a fellowship that studies it, embolden you to get up on your knees and eventually on your feet and say even if. Even if. So what's the takeaway? As I mentioned, I would start by being honest about your feelings. There's nothing spiritual about pretending everything is okay. And there's nothing unspiritual about questioning God. We see that again and again. But we also see that it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. As we're honest about our feelings with ourselves and God, as we talk to Him about them, the Spirit of God uses that to help us work through the process. And we go through the phases of being flat on our face, up on our knees, and standing on our feet, of going from the all the what-ifs to then the if-onlys to then even if, even if. So that's where we want to get, to the place where we can trust God no matter what. And if you're here today, and I know we've got some guests here, different folks, uh, and you've never placed your faith in Christ, that's where it begins. That's where the relationship with God begins. We're all born dead spiritually, and we become born again by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again. And once we become saved and part of the family of God, then we still have that old nature. We still struggle. The flesh lusts against the spirit, Galatians 5. And you know we have the new man, old man conflict that Paul talks about in Romans 7. And it's in those moments that we understand that it's okay to be honest and transparent, but we need to always resolve that, no matter how long it takes, into a place of confident trust where we can say, even if,
even if. And if you've not trusted taking that first step, then today's the day. It's a simple matter of faith, just trusting in Jesus Christ who died for your sins. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this uh, great psalm, so deep and so rich, so short, and yet so full of truth and a reminder of who you are. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone within the sound of my voice, either here or watching online, that is really struggling, I pray that this psalm was an encouragement. Because even someone like David, a man after God's own heart, goes through these, these moments. And I pray that it would be uh, a, a call to turn back to you and to lift up our eyes uh, to the heavens from whence cometh our help. And so, Lord, we thank you for this uh, psalm and thank you for this time of worship together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's all stand and sing together.